The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and the crowds that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I've been a Braves fan for as long as I can remember. Uh, When I was six years old, my uh, Little League team, the T-ball team, uh, went to a Braves game at the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And we all wore our uniforms as a team, and we took our gloves. You know, you you take your glove to the game because uh, of that chance that you're going to catch a foul ball, the pop fly. I was certain that I was going to catch one of Hank Aaron's home runs because we were Uh, sitting out there in in the nosebleed section. When we would visit our Kentucky cousins in Wilmore on Lowry Lane, um, my cousin Kevin and I would actually become the Atlanta Braves um, in the little homemade baseball field uh, in in the yard. Uh, And we were pretty good, weren't we, Kev? (laughs) We were some serious serious wiffle ball players. You know, when cable TV became the thing, some of you might remember when cable TV became the thing, um, the Atlanta Braves were on television every night on TBS. It would start at 7.35. You could watch the Atlanta Braves every night that they were playing, and so I did. Uh, One of the things back in those days that you could never uh, associate with the Braves uh, was winning a baseball game. (laughs) They didn't know how. Uh, My mama's family is from Georgia, and so when family would get together, uh, it would most often be at granddaddy's farm. And if the the Braves were playing, you were guaranteed to find granddaddy in his recliner in in front of the TV watching the game, usually disappointed in what was happening. Uh, I watched him for years just longing for uh, a Braves baseball team that could win a game. Uh, It was... uh, so bad that when I was a youth pastor in Atlanta, I took my youth group to a game and it really felt like we were the only ones in the stadium. But but then it happened. Uh, Maybe you remember when it happened. Uh, In 1990, the Braves finished dead last in in their division. But in 1991, they won their division. It was the first time in history, uh, in the National League anyway, that a team had gone from worst to first. And Granddaddy was happy. We were all happy. The Braves went to the World Series. Um, They lost in a nail-biting Game 7 to the Minnesota Twins, but that didn't seem to matter. Uh, The city of Atlanta went nuts. It was crazy. Everywhere you looked, bumper stickers, T-shirts, billboards, uh, banners uh, were all about this Braves team. Uh, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, every single day, would be a a gigantic photograph of the the game from the night before and and some great headline. 
Uh, on October the 29th, 1991, 750,000 people uh, stormed the streets of Atlanta to celebrate this team that was, that was coming through. Atlanta had been waiting for a champion, and so this parade uh, was huge, and everybody was happy. In our gospel lesson that Becky read for us just now, Matthew tells us about the Palm Sunday parade. It's a parade, I think, in some ways, is similar to the one that I witnessed 26 years ago on Peachtree Street in Atlanta. Um, instead of the crowd waving flags and banners and gigantic tomahawks, um, the, the crowd was waving leafy branches. Instead of the, the ground being covered with ticker tape, uh, the ground was, was being covered with their cloaks. They were taking off their cloaks and they were putting them on the ground. Atlanta's story was that they had waited for a champion for a long, long time. They had uh, literally been oppressed by the New York Mets and the Pittsburgh Pirates and the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, the story in Jerusalem was similar. You're familiar with the history of the Jewish people. Uh, they had waited a, a long time for a king. And throughout their history, they had been oppressed by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians, and now it was the, the Romans. And they were never more ready for this promised Messiah, the one who was coming to save them. And he was coming. He was coming into the city. And so the whole city was in turmoil. Matthew says that the whole city was in turmoil because of him, because of Jesus. And they were asking, who is this? This crowd was, was wondering about Jesus. And I found myself um, wondering about the crowd. And I wondered who they were. What were they doing there? Why did they show up for this parade? What were they curious about? What were they looking for? And so I tried to imagine the faces in this crowd. Obviously, there would be the disciples, kind of like um, the instigators with Jesus, the organizers of the parade, like, like those who helped our, our kids uh, march in and out with the palms. And I thought surely there would be those people in the crowd that Jesus had touched in one way or another. You know, like the blind man who was, who was born blind, he'd been blind from birth until Jesus came his way and, he, and Jesus healed him and so people would ask him about, about that and kind of theological questions exp, explain to us who that was and how that happened and he just puts his hands in you know, I, I don't know about that but what I do know is that I was blind and now I see again I think of all those people that Jesus touched and I'm guessing that a lot of them were probably there I wonder about the people that Jesus befriended. He made friends with lots of people. And when I thought about that group, I thought, well, that's kind of a rough-looking crowd, maybe. Or a curious shopkeeper, maybe standing in the doorway, watching from a distance. The religious leaders were there. Scribes, Pharisees, priests. And I tried to imagine the expression on their faces. Maybe there was a bit of wonder, curiosity. Maybe there was concern. Uh, Jim Carell told me this morning um, before the 8.30 service that the, the Romans would send extra garrisons of soldiers the, the week of Passover. So there was like double or triple the amount of, of soldiers in, in Jerusalem for Passover. 
And so there would be Roman soldiers on the, on the fringes of this parade uh, trying to keep order and keep the peace. And, and so maybe their expression was one of caution. Well, then I thought about us. You know, we're a crowd. And I think today we're, we're a, a, a part of this crowd, Matthew's crowd. And we show up on Palm Sunday and we wave the branches and we imagine at least this parade and the telling of the story each year. And so like, why am I here? Why are you here? What am I curious about? What am I looking for? Matthew tells us about a, a, a different crowd. It's a, it's a crowd that gathers just a few days later, except they arrive at night. And they arrive carrying clubs and swords. And when Jesus looks into that crowd, he sees the face of betrayal. And then another crowd gathers not long after that. And it's the crowd that, that gathers outside of, of Pilate's house. And I've always wondered, have the Hosannas of today that quickly turned to shouts for crucifixion? Or is that a different group altogether? The, the faces can come into focus when you read the story. There are uh, religious leaders in the crowd, and Matthew tells us that, that, that they're instigating the crowd, maybe whispering in people's ears, maybe shouting, uh, trying to dictate the, the way things will go. I noticed the face of Pilate's wife. She has this dream and she's disturbed. So she, she goes to Pilate and, and she says, this man is innocent. You, you need to leave him alone. It, it struck me that she said, have nothing to do with him. Don't get involved in this. Let the crowds have their way. You know, the season of Lent, we have been reflecting on the spiritual disciplines, those spiritual practices. Our mission statement is that we are the living body of Christ. We claim to be the living body of Christ. So that means that Jesus' mission is our mission. And if Jesus' mission is ours, then First United Methodist Church exists for the redemption of the world. And that's a tall order. And, and I'm convinced that we will not succeed in, in accomplishing our mission if we just try to be good. Or if we try to live well. Or if we try to save the world. It has to be intentional. The spiritual practices, fasting, prayer, meditation, solitude, a study. It's an intentional act on our part, and it's a way of training. We need to train to live well. At some point in Jesus' journey, getting to this place, Palm Sunday, uh, Passion Week, or Holy Week, on his journey toward the cross... He sets his face for Jerusalem. Luke tells us in the ninth chapter that when the hour had come, uh, when the time had come, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. A very intentional act. 
looking in this direction, uh, looking in the way of the cross. And I have learned that what you and I do, what we do in the private places, sets our faces for what happens when we're in the crowd. Our demeanor in the crowd is determined by what we do long before we get there. And it impacts uh, the way that we'll respond to things and the way uh, that we'll live. When Jesus gave his instructions on prayer, you remember he says, go into a secret place. Whenever you pray, go into a secret place. And God who sees in secret will meet you there. And God who meets you there will, will reward you. There's rewards involved. I'll never forget my granddaddy's face, in particular his laugh, and the smile on his face, opening day, 1996. The Atlanta Braves had won the World Series finally in October of 1995. And my Uncle Richie, who was an Atlanta businessman, had some serious connections because he scored us some great tickets. And so we were at opening day in Atlanta, Uh, the first game back in town after they had won the World Series. And so what happens opening day to the World Series champions is you you get your World Series ring. It's the ring ceremony. It's reward day for them. And so we're sitting behind home plate, like just a few rows up, and we watch the ring ceremony, and all these Braves get, get their, their rings. And then all of a sudden, a bat boy is carrying one of the World Series rings, coming right at us, like coming right to our row, and goes in the row right before us um, and gives the ring to Bobby Cox's wife. The manager of the Braves' wife was sitting right in front of us, and Hank Aaron's wife, too. And so the, the World Series ring was just right there, and we could see it, and it was huge, and it was amazing. And I looked over at Granddaddy's face and just uh, felt the joy. But you know, the reward didn't just happen. That reward came after years and years of training and hard work and discipline. My dad and I uh, were looking for one of the basketball games last week or the week before and it landed on a sports station, and they were, uh, this one guy was interviewing Freddie Freeman, who was the current first baseman for the Braves, and it was, it was just the two of them. He was, he was on an empty field, and he actually had a tee with a ball on it, just like the one I used when I was six years old, except it was probably a little taller. And he was demonstrating the practice that he does in order to hit a line drive over second base. And I was amazed at the precision of the things that he was saying, the way that he held his shoulders, the exact placement of his big toe and how he would hold the bat. And then the hours and hours of hitting the ball off of that tee in the batting cage and on the field, the things that he would do alone impacted what he would do when he was in front of the crowd. So in all of these stories, the people in these crowds, they've had private meetings. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Like the, there's the donkey man. There's a, there's a donkey waiting for them. Jesus says, just, just tell them it's me, and they'll, and they'll know what to do. The donkey man had a meeting with Jesus so that what needed to happen would happen. In, in a more negative light, you had the, the scribes and the, the chief priests and the elders. They gathered privately, secretly, in the palace of the high priest. And it was there that they, they plotted and they conspired how uh, they could arrest and kill Jesus. And right after that is Ju- Judas's secret meeting. 
he says, how much will you give me to betray him? And they agree on 30 pieces of silver. And um, interestingly, he betrays Jesus with a kiss, but all of that was planned. And then after that, they're preparing for the Passover. And so the disciples ask Jesus, well, where are we going to have the Passover? Where are we going to meet? And Jesus says, there's a certain man in the city. And this certain man will show you where to go. So it was a, a secret meeting or a private meeting with this certain man, which enabled Jesus and his disciples to have their own private time together. And what amazing time that was. Not only did they celebrate the Passover together, but after the supper was over, Jesus took a towel, girded himself, and he took some water, and he, and he knelt down and, and, and washed their feet. And he said, this is the way you're supposed to live in this world. It's not about armies and warriors and champions. It's about being servants of the kingdom. It's about washing dirt off feet. And then he's with Peter, James, and John. He summons them to a private meeting in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because Jesus needed to prepare for what was ahead. And Jesus prayed and said, I need you all to watch with me. Watch with me and pray with me. And unfortunately, uh, they, they couldn't do it. They slept. And I wonder how much that impacted their actions later when they all fled for their lives and, and left Jesus alone. I don't know how many of you um, do email. Um, email is an unfortunate thing. Um, that was my little email joke. People will send you emails with with funny things and jokes. My father-in-law, Chan's dad, likes to send kind of nostalgic emails with pictures from the good old days of, diff you know, just different things. And um, I don't always read those kinds of emails, but since they're from her dad, I will look at them on occasion. And if there's a big wave of them, then, then I may or may not. But I, I decided that last year he sent me one of these, and I decided to look at it. And um, there were some some happy pictures and some good old day pictures, and then there was one that wasn't such a happy picture. It was 1936, Nazi Germany. And it was this large crowd. And everyone in this crowd was, was saluting, as they did. All except one man. And his face was circled. And his name was August Landmesser. And he's refusing to salute. His arms are crossed, and he's disturbed. And the caption below says that his wife was Jewish. And I wonder if I have that kind of courage. Am I a face in the crowd that will make a difference? You know, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this donkey through this crowd, and we're in that crowd. And when I look into the face of Jesus, what am I hoping for? What am I hoping for? Am I shouting Hosanna? You know, Hosanna literally means save now or save, I pray. Do I need God to save me now, today? I think oftentimes we find ourselves in this place and know that we need God's healing touch in some way. Do I need God's mercy this morning? 
Maybe as an act of worship this morning, you know, we've brought these towels and thank you for doing that. But maybe like some of those in the Palm Sunday crowd, I need to take off my cloak. What do I need to take off? That's something that is, is uh, heavy and is, is burdening me and pulling me down. And maybe I need to leave that at Jesus' feet. We've got that stuff. I know we do. Or perhaps I'm one of the religious leaders. Maybe I'm like one of them, just hoping that Jesus will stay in the religious box that I'm familiar with. Or a Roman soldier who's there to keep the peace. And Matthew says that Jesus' presence caused the city of Jerusalem to be in turmoil. And I wonder the kind of turmoil Jesus might cause in, in my life or in my church. Maybe mine is the face of indifference. Maybe I'm just watching from a safe distance. Maybe I'm not out at all. Maybe I just stay home. It's comfortable at home. But when Jesus looks in our direction, I wonder what he is hoping for. I'm sure he doesn't want us to stay at home. I'm sure he doesn't want us to be at a safe distance. I'm sure he wants us to be out there, right in the middle of the things that matter. Jesus believed that the world was worth saving, and that's why he got on the donkey in the first place and started that journey toward the cross. Jesus came to save a world that still needs to see the face of love. So I think when Jesus looks in our direction, that he hopes that the world will too. And that when the world looks our way, when they look at our faces, the faces in this crowd, they will know that the kingdom of God has come near. That's my prayer for us. God help us with that. Amen. now and forever. Amen.
Well, thank you all for coming today. And I want to urge you as you go, um, don't just be another face in the crowd. Because we are the living body of Christ, and the living Christ is counting on us. So go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. And the world will never be the same. God bless you and go in the peace of Christ.